We are in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, I think about verse 29 or so. And verse 29 is right in the middle of a passage, of course, discussing Moses and how he uh, chose to suffer affliction with the people of God, verse 25, rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. He was able to do that because he was looking long-term and he thought not in the here and now, but rather looked in the long-term and he realized the reward that he would be able to receive one day. By faith, verse 27, he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king because he endured. Verse 28, through faith he kept the Passover, uh, lest he that destroyed the firstborn should touch them. By faith they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, which the Egyptians attempting to do were drowned. Verse 29, think about uh, Moses as he led them through the Red Sea. To me, personally, this is only to me personally, there's no such thing as a best verse in the Bible or a greatest verse in the Bible. But to me, I guess one of the most meaningful anyway, anywhere in the New Testament, in the Old Testament rather, must be in Exodus 14, as just before they go through the Red Sea and pass through on dry ground, as God tells Moses, as he's about to lead these people through the sea, he said, be still. And the Lord will fight for you. And today you will see the salvation of the Lord. Pretty, pretty meaningful verse, isn't it? But I think it's very meaningful, not for just for Moses and those of his day. If you think about it, I believe that passage is very meaningful for us today when we're going through our own trials, or we're going through our own Red Sea of life, if you will, figuratively. It would do us all well to remember those words spoken in Exodus 14. Be still and keep your peace, and the Lord will fight for you, and you shall see the salvation of the Lord. Then we keep reading in Hebrews 11. By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they were compassed about seven days, that is, after they were surrounded seven days. By faith the harlot Rahab perished not with them that believed not, uh, when she had received the spies with peace. And what shall I more say? How much do you want me to go on? It's like he's saying here. What more do you want me to say? For the time would fail me. I don't really have time enough to talk about everything and everyone, he's saying. But he said, the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and of Barak and of Samson and of Jethro, of David, also and Samuel and of the prophets. Of Gideon, you could go back and read this in Judges 6 through 9. He took 300 men and defeated the Midianites. You could go to Judges 4, I believe, and you'll find there the general of Israel's army as he defeats uh, Syria, uh, uh, Sisera, I'm sorry, a reference to Barak. We're familiar with Samson and the others and David. Notice verse 33, who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions. Read about uh, Daniel in the lion's den. I think by now surely we've seen all of these people we're reading about in Hebrews 11 here were saved by God's grace when they responded with an obedient faith. And faith always is going to be obedient, it's going to be active, if it's going to be a saving faith. A passive faith, an idle faith, never has the power to save anybody. Faith alone is not going to do it. We know that. The only time we read about faith alone is when it's dead in the book of James. I know Martin Luther didn't care much for that, but that's still what the Holy Spirit inspired James to write. Regardless of how Martin Luther may have felt about it, 
Look at verse 34. They quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant, and fight, turned to fight, uh, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Rather, they made their enemies turn to flight and run. Women received their dead, raised to life again. You can read about that more than once in 1 Kings uh, and 2 Kings as well. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. A better resurrection is an interesting phrase, is it not? I'm not sure what all that includes or what all is entailed in that, but I'll give you my take on it basically. How is it that some can receive a better resurrection and some can receive a resurrection that is maybe not so good? Uh, oftentimes we think about the Christians and our hope of the resurrection. Well, it's good to talk about that, but I guess when you think about our hope of a resurrection, we should be thinking about our hope of a better resurrection. Because there is a worse resurrection. That might not be grammatically correct. But sometimes we talk about the hope of the Christian's resurrection as if Christians were the only ones who are going to be resurrected. Well, that's not true. Look at John 5, 28 and 29. Marvel not at this. He says, the hour is coming in which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice. That means everyone. Because he goes on to say in verse 29, the righteous and the unrighteous are both going to be raised from their graves. Uh, now, for the unrighteous, their resurrection is not going to be so good, is it? Sometimes we sing the song, you know, there's a, there's a glad day coming and a sad day coming. For some, you can't really overstate, or you can't overemphasize the sadness of that day as the lost are doomed to an eternity in hell. Now, on the other hand, the Christians are the ones who will experience a better resurrection. Or let's say... Not just uh, Christians, I suppose, but let's say all of God's people who've ever lived. That would include those in the Old Testament, would it not? But they're going to have a better resurrection because rather than being resurrected uh, to the damnation of punishment in hell, they're going to be resurrected to eternal life. And then you have to ask about what does it mean to have eternal life? Because it, it doesn't mean just existing, you know, you're alive and you exist. Because, after, again, everyone's going to be raised, uh, the righteous and the unrighteous. They're all going to exist. Uh, again, the best way to me, anyway, to define death is separation. When we die physically, our spirit is separated from our body. When we are dead in sin, we're separated from God. If we're dead to sin, we're separated from sin. Death always involves a separation. So if death always involves a separation, then it would also seem that life always involves a union. So when we're talking about eternal life, we're talking about spending an eternity with God. Sometimes, in fact, a lot of times, people look forward to heaven so they can be with their loved ones. That's not a bad thing. Uh, Paul wrote, uh, I believe, to the church at uh, Thessalonica, I can't quote the verse now, but he basically says, what is my hope or crown of rejoicing? What is my hope or my glory of, or crown of rejoicing? What is it that I hope for most? He says, but to see you in the presence of God when Christ comes again. And so he's longing to see them. And so to long to see our loved ones in heaven, of course it's a good thing, but there are also a real possibility, much more than possibility, there's a real probability we will also have loved ones who will not be in heaven as much as we might like to hope for. Uh, it, you know, if people are not faithful to God, and certainly if, they haven't, if they're not Christians, they're not going to be there. And so we also have loved ones who will not be in heaven. So in light of that, what makes heaven, heaven? I believe it's because it's there that we will have eternal life, meaning an eternal union, fellowship with God. 
I want to be in heaven more than anything else because that's where my God is. I want to see y'all there. I do. That will truly be a reason to rejoice. Will it not, Colt? That'll be a reason to rejoice. Yes or no? I can't hear your head when you shake it. <laughs> you're supposed to say amen, brother. And you're still not. <laughs> that's all right. I've always thought if a preacher had to ask for an amen, it didn't mean much anyway, so that's all right. <laughs> amen. And now you do it. Now you amen that comment. Thank you very much. Uh, appreciate that you feel the same way I do about the amens anyway. Uh, and now I have totally lost my train of thought. <laughs> I have. I don't even know what I was talking about. Can somebody help me? You're going to be in heaven with God. You think about it. That's what makes heaven, heaven. It's not because my friends will be there. I'm talking about my Christian friends even. That will be a good thing. But ultimately, it's because that's where God is. Won't it be wonderful to be able to meet our Creator? To have fellowship with Him then that will never be disturbed, never be separated. That's what makes heaven, heaven. Notice then, we keep reading in verse 36, then verse 35 tells us, we're hoping today for a better resurrection. Verse 36, and others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings, yea, moreover of bonds and imprisonment. I hope you're picturing in your mind what's happening here. Do you understand what, what I started to say, Paul? I'll go ahead and say Paul. I think he wrote the book of Hebrews. Look at, look at what we're looking at in verse 35. Others were tortured that they might obtain a better resurrection. Others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings, yea, moreover of bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned. I believe um, history will probably record that Zechariah died when he was stoned to death. They were stoned. They were sawn asunder. That's probably a reference to Isaiah. History seems to bear out that he died when he was cut in two. You understand what these people were going through because of their faith? He's telling us in verse 11, this is like the hall of faith. We often call it the heroes of faith. They were stoned. They were sawn asunder. They were tempted. They were slain with a sword. They were killed with a sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented. These people were stoned. At least Isaiah was cut in two. Literally. That's how he died. And maybe those that did not even die, particularly in verse 37 that they're mentioning, notice they're wandering about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented because of their faith. And dare I say it, we have the nerve sometimes to sing the song, Why are others prospering? Why I have it so bad. One of these days, I'll understand it all by and by. Yet none of us here have experienced what these people have experienced because of their faith. So the question to ask is, would we? If the opportunity came? Whether, is our faith such that we would be willing to do that? Or would we deny knowing God and knowing Christ? Truly these people suffered because of their faith. But why do they suffer because of their faith? Again, just like Moses and the others, they thought long term. Heaven will surely be worth it all, will it not? Heaven will surely be worth it all. Notice verse 38, of whom the world was not even worthy. That's a pretty strong statement, isn't it? 
He's like saying the world wasn't even worthy to have these people among them. Wasn't even deserving to have these people among them. And yet they were. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And these all, having obtained a good report through their faith, received not the promises. That is not immediately, not in their lifetime. But again, they did receive the promise, didn't they? They have received the promise long term. Talking about heaven itself. But they, they lived according to their faith in something they could not see. Well, should we not be living by faith and not by sight as well? 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 7. For we walk by faith and not by sight. In fact, if it is no sight there, doesn't it pretty much uh, take away the faith aspect of it? 2 Corinthians 5 7. But these all, verse 39, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise. God having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. Interesting verse in, here in verse 40, if you think about it. That they, uh, our God's provided some better thing for us. He's talking about for us at the time he's writing it and the time that applies to us today. He's basically talking about the time of Christianity. As Christians now, we have something better than that. We've seen the word better a number of times already throughout the book of Hebrews. God has provided something better for us. Remember today we have a better promise, better rest, better tabernacle, better priesthood, better sacrifice, better testament, you name it. On and on and on and on and better. God has provided something better for us that they, without us, the they, who is the they? I think he's saying that they who have lived, those he mentioned in verse uh, chapter 11, but he really everybody in the Old Testament, that they, those who lived prior to Christianity, without us, that's you and me, should not be made perfect. Uh, again, perfect uh, in the New Testament. I'm not sure if there's an exception to this. If there is, I don't know it, honestly. But they without us should be made perfect, has the ideal of complete, mature, reach the desired end or the desired goal. And so that they without us wouldn't be made perfect. What's he saying? Is it meaning without, without you individually? I mean, he's like saying, well, without Rod, none of these people could have made it. You know, without Rod, none of these people would have been made perfect. It's really not that. It's the ideal that with, without the coming of the Christian dispensation of time, they would not have reached their intended goal and been made perfect or complete or mature. Because without Christ's blood, they couldn't have reached it. And that's his point. When he says without us, he's not saying without us individually, you know, they never would have made it. But it's the idea without, without the time of Christianity, the gospel dispensation, however you want to say it, without that, they would not have been made perfect. Well, they, that is, they wouldn't have reached their goal, really. They wouldn't have reached heaven. That sounds like a pretty strong statement. They wouldn't have reached heaven. But think about it. If we live in better, 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 that means they lived in inferior, 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 right? So they were still living under an inferior tabernacle with an inferior sacrifice, an inferior priesthood, inferior promises, inferior rest, inferior everything about it. But again, go to Hebrews 9 verse 15. When Christ died, he shed his blood for those who lived under the old law as well as the new. He was dying for them too. So without the time of Christianity and without Christ's death, 
they could never have been perfect in the sense that they never could have become mature and reached their intended goal. Now he's told us all of this in chapter 11. He's told us in chapter 11 now of, of, the, of, of faith, the nature of faith. He's telling us all about all of these people in chapter 11 who did what they did because of their faith, who had the active, obedient faith. And now he tells us in chapter 12 and verse 1, Wherefore, you could probably read that therefore, even if you wanted to. I don't know that the meaning is that much different. The point is that the thoughts of chapter 12 here are connected to chapter 11, obviously. I know we have a chapter break in our Bibles. I guess that's good. I know it's good. But at the same time, chapter breaks are not always put in the best place, I think. And we see that here as well. Because when he says wherefore, or sometimes you read in the Bible therefore, something like that, he's basically saying wherefore in light of what I've just written, in light of what you've read, in light of what you just read, now consider this. So he says wherefore, if that's the way it is, all of these people of faith in chapter 11, wherefore, seeing we also are compassed or surrounded about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. If you couldn't preach a sermon on that for about six weeks, something's wrong with you. I'm serious, man. There's so much thought in this one verse. But what does he mean? Wherefore we also are compassed or surrounded about with so great a cloud of witnesses. And so when you hear this verse discussed, people often say, imagine this. Now imagine you're running this race. He tells us in verse 1, let us run with patience the race that is set before us. And they have the idea of you're down on a, in an arena here and you're in a track and, and you're about to start your race, you know, and run this lap or however many laps. And, and you're going to be encouraged to run this race and then finish this race. And at, while you're running this race, you have all of these pe people, people in the bleachers uh, and they're all looking down watching you as witnesses would watch and see all this. Uh, that's a pretty common explanation of this verse, isn't it? problem with that, in my belief, it's just totally wrong. <laughs> totally wrong. I don't believe people who, who have died are aware of what's going on in this life today. Now, I believe they do have memory, perhaps. The Bible seems to teach, if you want to take um, some things literally, like the rich man of Lazarus, and I'm not saying not to. Sometimes people, uh, I'm getting off track here, sometimes people discuss whether something is real or whether it's a parable. Sometimes I think we forget there's a third option that is a fable. The Bible does have fables for things that could not happen or said to have happened. And I'll just let you study that for yourself from the rich man of Lazarus. But the point being here, uh, I think, and I would go to the rich man Lazarus for this, I think the Bible does seem to teach that people who have died do have some memory of things on this earth. Don't we read that in Luke 16 chapter? Remember, the rich man is told, to remember. So I think they've got a remembrance of things that have gone on in this earth. I'm not going to be real dogmatic about that one way or another. I don't believe they have an awareness of what is going on now. Sometimes people... Sometimes people die and, you know, somebody wants to comfort the family and they'll tell the grandchildren, you know, well, Grandpa's in heaven now just watching you and he's, 
He still loves you, and he's looking down on you, and he watches. You. He's watching you. Well, I suppose he still loves you, but he's not watching you. Look at uh, Ecclesiastes. I think it's Ecclesiastes nine five. And in Ecclesiastes nine five, we find out that the dead know nothing. Now, what does that mean when the dead know nothing? You you really need to keep that verse in context, not just context of surrounding verses, but context of the whole book of Ecclesiastes. If you're going to go to that and say, well, the dead know nothing, and Ecclesiastes 9.5 says that, if you ignore the context, then you're going to go away thinking, well, the Bible obviously teaches the doctrine of soul sleeping. That is that when somebody dies, they're just simply asleep. Uh, they're unaware of their surroundings. They're unaware of what's going on. And I mean, as it pertains to themselves, they're just soul sleeping. They're just there. And after all, the dead know nothing. Well, that can't be true that the dead are totally unaware of where they're at and that the dead know nothing. Again, you could go to Luke, the 16th chapter. Uh, the rich man certainly knew where he was, didn't he? Now, on the other hand, Lazarus, I believe, knew where he was too. He was in Abraham's bosom, a place of honor and comfort. So the dead are aware of where they are. They're aware of their surroundings. They're aware of their condition in life. So what are we getting at in Ecclesiastes 9.5? The dead know nothing. If you read Ecclesiastes 9.5, you'll read a phrase throughout the book, under the sun. You'll read a, that phrase in Ecclesiastes under the sun about as often as you read the word better in the book of Hebrews. Under the sun, under the sun, under the sun. And remember in, in, in uh, Ecclesiastes, Solomon has got everything. You couldn't Imagine anything that he would have wanted in terms of physical possessions that he didn't have. He had it all. You want to talk about somebody who had it all? He had it all. Think about this, because what did he say at one point? I hate my life. He had it all. I hate my life. How is it that he can have it all and he's able to say, I hate my life? Something was still missing. And it's really hard for me now to stay on track because I could go through the whole book of Ecclesiastes. But we understand Solomon is looking for happiness, peace, and content, uh, contentment somewhere. He's looking for it everywhere. I mean, he's looking for it in his companionship. He's looking for it in his possessions. He's looking for it in his stuff. He's looking for it in the own, own things, the, the things that he himself does and produces. He's looking for it in, in agricultural things, everything. He's looking wherever he can find happiness. He's going to look for it. And yet he says, I hate my life. Because then we get to the book of Ecclesiastes, to the end of the book, and what do we read there at the end of the book? First of all, we read, I think, what is a very poetic way of describing our physical bodies as they age. It's almost humorous, but it's the older you get, the less funny it gets. The grinders cease. Well, you've lost your teeth. You have teeth now, but you bought them somewhere. They're no longer your own, you see. The windows grow dim because you find it harder to see without glasses. It's just talking about your eyesight's failing. The grinders cease. Eyesight fails. The littlest thing seems to keep you awake at night or awaken you. Small thing that has very little weight to it now becomes a burden to lift. Even steps are troublesome for you. 
this, the, the, the man is stooped. This is all in Ecclesiastes there. He's describing what happens to our physical bodies, and it comes up the time when the silver cord is broken. And he says, Then shall the dust return to the earth as it was, but the Spirit unto God who gave it. But then keep reading, and you'll find a verse that I think it is truly, in my opinion, which is, dare I say, a pretty good one. In my opinion, there is a verse in Ecclesiastes that it's very unfortunate that the King James translators put the word duty. Let us hear the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. That is what was missing in his life. He had it all, but there was still something missing, and that was his relationship with God, I believe. But if you look, if, at least if you read from the King James, you'll notice the word duty is in italics, meaning it was put in there by the translators in order to help us understand the meaning of the text. I think it really did, probably the very opposite in that instance. I say that because if you want to say that to fear God and keep His commandments is the whole duty of men, then you're looking at that simply as a duty. Well, it is our duty. I don't deny that. But that verse says much more than that when you consider the entire book of Ecclesiastes. Solomon looked for happiness and contentment everywhere. And he couldn't find it without God. So let's leave the word duty out. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole of man. I think Solomon, you remember the army slogan? I don't know if they even do it anymore or not. They have, you know, when the army's military has gone like everybody else. You know. Remember the army slogan? I think it was the army. May all you can be, join the army. Something like that. I think as Solomon is saying, you'll never be all you can be until you have a right relationship with God. As long as your relationship with God is not what it ought to be, something is missing. Fear God and keep His commandments. This is the whole of man. This is what makes man complete, does it not? Without that, something is going to be missing. So he tells us in verse 1 of chapter 12, that's from Ecclesiastes 9.5, I guess. I, got my, I need to get myself back on track. Ecclesiastes 9.5. Remember now the phrase throughout Ecclesiastes, under the sun? When he says the dead know nothing in Ecclesiastes 9.5, I think he is saying the dead know nothing under the sun. Meaning the dead are not aware of what's going on today. As much as a parent might want to tell their little child that your grandfather has died and he's looking down on you now, honey. He's not. The dead know nothing under the sun. Alright, so I think that's how we look at that. Wherefore, seeing we are also surrounded with so great a cloud of witnesses. That's these people here in verse, uh, uh, well, in chapter 11. We're surrounded with so great a cloud of witnesses. Who are the witnesses then? People say, well, they're the ones in the stands looking down on us as we run the race. I said, No. I say, no, they cannot even see us. Ecclesiastes 9.5, they're not aware of what's going on in the sun. So how are they witnesses? Sometimes people say, well, you can't be a witness if you didn't see something. So they must see it or they wouldn't be witnesses. Study the word witness. Study the word witness. And what you're going to find out is now, remember, he's told us in chapter 11, look at all of these people and look what they did because of their faith and look how they endured and look how they were punished and the things they suffered, but they did it and they endured. 
and they ultimately receive the promise of heaven. What he's saying is when we look at, back at them, their lives stand as witness to the fact that you can do it too. Sometimes people want to say, I'd like to be a Christian. I say, it's just too hard. I can't do it. Why not? You know, I remember, I remember I heard an elder say something probably 55 years ago. I'm 65. But this, I don't know why it sticks out in my mind. After all these years, I remember him saying one time in class, he said, being a Christian is only as hard as you make it. That's a lot of truth to that, isn't it? I know it can be hard. But sometimes we make it harder than it has to be. And again, I think his point here in verse 1 of chapter 12 is that these people's lives, when we look at them and see what all they did, their lives serve as a witness to the fact that we can do it. That we can do it as well. It's not that they're looking at us, it's that we're looking at them. We're looking at them. It's just the other way around. So we're surrounded with this great cloud of witnesses. That is, their lives attest to the fact that we can do it now. You can do it. So if you can do it, what are you going to do? Are you going to drop out of the race? See, you say, well, it's too hard. I can't do it. So I might as well drop out of the race. In fact, I'm not going to drop out. I'm just not ever going to enter it to begin with. <laughs> He's saying, no, you can do it. Their lives serve as testament to the fact that you can do it. So what you need to do, chapter 12 and verse 1, is you need to get rid of everything in your life that hinders you from winning this race. Now, lay aside every weight. Well, we know that if you're trying to run a race. I mean, sometimes people run with weights on, I guess, but I don't think they ever do that during the race. It's maybe to prepare for it, perhaps. I don't know. I'm obviously not one familiar with running. <laughs> Um, but they're going to get rid of the weight that hinders them. Yes, sir. What's interesting is I have run three marathons, and the witnesses around, usually the people around you, if you focus on the people around you, as what you were saying in the first one that's not true, in the first example, you oftentimes don't finish the race. It becomes too hard to be able to finish it. But if you focus on the on the race and, the, and, and on yourself and on those that have finished the race before and then how to finish the race you, you often are stronger during that race. I don't know if that makes sense. It, it makes perfect sense, you see, and that's what he's telling us. Focus on those people who've done it and not only run the way, not only run the race. <laughs> not only did they run the race, they won it too. And he said, focus on those people. All right, notice he said, lay aside every weight. That basically, whatever is going to hinder you from running the race, get rid of it. And the sin which does so easily beset us or entrap us or ensnare us or entangle us. I believe that when he said lay aside every weight, it doesn't necessarily mean anything that's sinful. It may be sinful, every weight, but I think it could include things that are not sinful. You see... Remember when we go to Matthew, the 13th chapter of Matthew, and we read about the sower and the seed. What happens to some of the seed? Remember, it seemed to sprout for a while and maybe even grow for a little while, but eventually it failed to produce any fruit. 
Because it was choked with what? The cares and the pleasures of this world. I don't think that's necessarily sin. But when you take, I mean, there are some things that may be good in themselves. But what happens is we become so involved in that, surrounded by that, it becomes so time-consuming that it does become a sin because it causes us to leave God out of our lives and it causes us to focus on those things rather than God. And so people focus on things, you know, I need to get the, I need to strive and work hard, you know, to get this promotion at work. I mean, I need to save and save and save so I can have the down payment for this perfect house. You got to drive the right kind of car after all. And one of these days I hope to be able to retire and all this. And we get, we get so involved in this that we've left God out of our lives. We've left the only thing that even matters out of our lives. No wonder Paul said when he wrote to the church of Philippi, this one thing I do. He's like saying, man, if I don't accomplish anything else in life, I'm accomplishing this. It's like Paul's writing a to-do list for life. This one thing I do, he said, I'm going to forget the past and I'm going to press on to the future. I'm going to talk about keeping your eye on the goal. I think that's the ideal. We don't need to let anything and the sin was just so easily beset us. Remember, what, what did Jesus say at one point? You know, if you're, I can't quote this exactly, but if your eye causes you to sin, what did he say? Plug it out. If your arm causes you to foot, get rid of it. Some say, well, he didn't mean that literally. Well, I don't think he meant that literally either. But when you look at what he's saying about your eye, your feet, your hand, get rid of it. I think he's what I think what he is saying is there is there is if there's anything that you see if there's anything that you're doing if there's any place you're going that's going to hinder you being with God get rid of it stop it stop it because there's nothing you're going to ever experience on this life in this life that's worth losing out on heaven is there and so you've got to get rid of every weight, and the sin was just easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Every one of us has a race before us. Now, it might not be exactly the same for everybody. How are you going to describe this race? Some say, well, it's not a sprint, you know. Maybe it is more like a marathon. You need to run with patience. Do you think it's possible that if we're going to look at this as a race, it may also sometimes be, even be like an obstacle course? I mean, there's obstacles along the way, and you may not have the same one I do even, you know, as far as obstacles and things that can kind of get in the way of being a Christian. But he's saying, listen, you get rid of anything that's going to keep you from running this race and run it with patience because you've got this race set before you, and you need to run it because you're mindful of the goal. You know, when you're running eight miles, 18 miles, your body's going to say, I don't want no more. That weight that so easily ensnares us, that weighs us down. And if you don't push through it, you will stop. Right. You have to push through that weight that your legs will feel like they weigh 100 pounds. And if you don't push through it, you will stop. You have Somehow to you have to find a way to keep on going. Keep on going. In due season we shall reap if we faint not, Galatians 6. 1 Corinthians 15, our faith and labor is not in vain. See, So we've got to, whatever it is in your life, if it's slowing you down, get rid of it. 
get rid of it. If it's making you hard, making it harder for you to be a Christian, get rid of it. I don't care if it's if it's something you watch on TV. Don't tell me I only watch clean shows. <laughs> all right, good. How have you how have you figured out to get rid of all the offensive commercials? Tell me. I'm, but I'm serious about that. You know, we look at sin. Sin's horrible. Sin's awful. And then we go home in the evening and entertain ourselves with it on television. How much sense does that make? Whatever's keeping you away from God, get rid of it. Get rid of it. And when we do that, and they say, well, I don't have time to read the Bible. <laughs> Figure that one out. We're going to look unto Jesus next time we meet the author and finisher of our faith. It is... Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2 is where we'll pick up.